Hello everybody. I use this to a degree. There is a sense of laxity in the camp. There is a sense of laxity in the church in general and all of us in specific to one degree or another and you will have to ask the Lord and listen to him to find out what that is for you. If there's a spirit of laxity in one saint, then you can imagine how this affects exponentially his church in one nation, one city, but especially globally. I want you to remember as you read the Bible that the apostles had requirements to meet. They had a standard to live up to. And in the New Testament also, in with pastors and deacons and even and even their wives, they had requirements to meet. They had a standard to live up to. And Christians, all Christians, have requirements to meet, a standard to live up to. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not an issue of salvation or something we have to do in order to gain salvation. This is once we have salvation that the Lord in His holiness and in His kingdom says, I have a holiness standard, I have a righteousness standard, and, you know, we have been found wanting to one degree or another. Now, non-believers, worldly, unsaved people, they rarely have or care about any standard. In fact, they often set their own, but they're very low. However, Christians don't seem to care too much about the standard, God's standard, either. Their Christianity is comfortable or casual, and there's a pervasive attitude of laxity. Laxity is the, the word the Lord gave me when I was seeking him. Yeah, I, I don't use that word in my everyday vocabulary. I mean, I knew what it meant because I know what lax means, but I've never used the word laxity. So again, this is from the Lord. This And this is cause for concern, brothers and sisters. We're told in Romans 3, 19 and 20, and Romans 4, 15, that the law was given to show us we couldn't keep it and that we need a savior. Otherwise, we'd be guilty and doomed to destruction. There'd be no hope whatsoever for any of us. Our hope of heaven, of salvation, of forgiveness of sins lies in grace, but because we love God, if we do, we seek to obey the law and to keep his commandments. Okay, that's important for you to understand that. Jesus told us in John 14, 15, he said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he also said to us in Matthew 7, 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is the giver of grace alone. I know this, and you do. But we, in our laxity, seem to be offering ourselves a, oh, how can I put it, a false sense of grace. Okay? We can't offer ourselves grace. <laughs> We're not the giver of grace. We're soft, uh, complacent, and we are casual sometimes and comfortable and slothful.
to tell you the truth. And this is not meant to take away our freedom in Jesus whatsoever. And this is not to lay a burden down on people. This is not a works-based mentality. This is about loving our God and living for Him and living holy, God-honoring, light-shining lives. In fact, Matthew, excuse me, Hebrews 12:14 tells us, "Strive for peace with everyone." And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, don't let anybody tell you this is a legalistic thing or it's a, uh, a work-based mentality. It's nothing like that. It's if you love your parents, you obey them. That's how you show them one way. You show them that you respect them, that you know they have authority over you, that you live under their rules and their laws, and you should that the rules and laws are good and meant for your good, and that you love them by keeping their commandments. When you rebel, that sends the opposite message. So this is not a workspace mentality. It's nothing like that. It's just if you love me, Jesus said, you will keep my commandments. It's that simple. Now, Jesus Christ didn't leave his heavenly command post and come to earth, <clears throat> live among men, and submit to death willingly, suffer excruciatingly at the cross, stand, uh, shed his blood, and take on the sins of the entire world, you and me included, and offer us his righteousness so that we don't have, so we might live for him and know him eternally and spend that eternity in heaven with him so that we could lower the bar that he himself set and even raised. Do you remember how he said in Ephesians 27, so that he, Jesus, might present the church to himself in splendor, not mediocrity, without spot or wrinkle, meaning a living according to the standard he set and also raised. <clears throat> or any such thing, he says, that she, meaning us and his church, might be holy and without blemish. Let me say that again, just the scripture. So that we might... So he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This means without laxity, without mediocrity, without lowering the bar, without lowering our standards, without being comfortable and casual. Okay, Do you remember the times that he used the phrase... But I say to you, he said this a lot, let the Spirit of God refresh our memory of the six times in Matthew 5 alone that he reminds us of what the bar was and then he raises it, not lowers it. In each of the six previous verses, okay, there's verse 21, 27, 31, 33, 38, 43, all in chapter 5 alone. The Lord Jesus refers to the law, the Ten Commandments, and he says, You have heard that it was said. And then James 2.10 makes it clear that we are unable to keep the law perfectly because it says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in even one point, so it's either godliness or ungodliness. 
<clears throat> so we might say, oh, we did this sin and we did that sin, and they have different degrees of, you know, what we might get in trouble for, might we know that what we might know is wrong. But he's not saying that. He's either there's no gray area with God. There's great, there's there's good, which is perfection, and there's evil, which is imperfection. So he says, if you if you miss the bar, if you lower the bar, if you miss the law in even one point, you're guilty of all of it. So you're either perfect or you're not. Now Jesus is God. We know this. And he knows all things, yet he doesn't relax or lower the bar <clears throat> so that we can meet it. Okay, we might think, he might think, or we might even think, you know, this is too, this is impossible for us to do, so you're going to have to lower the bar so, we, so you can, we can meet it. And he doesn't say that. He says, I know that you're imperfect, but I'm still, here's the standard I still expect you to live your lives according to. Okay, now if we can, he's, he doesn't lower the bar. He doesn't even do so so we, can, so we can reach it, so we can meet the bar. That's man's way of thinking, honestly. Jesus does the unthinkable, what doesn't make sense. He takes a standard that we already can't meet, and then he raises it. In verses 22, 28, 32, 34, 39, and 44, we said before that it said, you have heard that it was said. In other words, you were told that this is how you're to live. And now Jesus says, in the second group of verses, right after the first ones, he says, but I say to you, okay, there's a difference. So he says, you've heard that it was said, or you've heard that you were supposed to do this, or you're supposed to live this way. And you're imperfect, so you can't do this, so I'll lower the bar. No, he says, you know what, I'm going to raise the bar. You, you heard it said this, but you know what, I'm saying to you this, which is even higher. So how do we know that he is setting a higher standard and expecting us to meet it? Okay, let's examine the verses. Verses 21 and 22. You have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, raising the bar, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment in the lake of fire. Verses 27 and 28, he says again, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Raising the bar again. Verses 31 and 32. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Raising the bar again. Verses 33 and 34, again you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, excuse me, okay, let's end it there, but, but you can see how he's raising the bar. Again, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, 
You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. Here again, verses 38 and 39. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. In verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So we're raising the bar, okay? So there's a spirit of laxity. I don't know what's causing it. I don't know if it's our flesh. I'm sure partly it is. <clears throat> I don't know if it's Satan. I'm sure partly it is. But it seems to be pretty pervasive now. And you notice whenever you have a bar of any kind in your life, or a border, or something, or a line that you're living up to, or a line that you won't cross, once you begin to lessen that that strict line or or cross it or or lower the bar even a little bit or the expectations or the way you've been living and striving to live the one once you do that it's almost like you've made up your mind to just cave and so jesus has said no <clears throat> you're not to do that we are going to raise the bar that i have set you have heard it was that it was said but i say to you and we're going to live this way so ask the Lord to examine your heart and bring to your mind all or the one ways in which you are lax and then ask him for the grace knowing that he will give it to you because he will because what he answers the prayers of those who ask things according to his will so we know in advance to give him thanks and praise that he will give us those things our prayers will be answered if they're with the right motive now, there's six times in Matthew 5 alone we said that we see the two phrases juxtaposed and conjoined. You have heard that it was said with, but I say to you. The second part is not a lowering, but it's a raising. I just read them so you can see from Scripture itself, not my opinion, the authority and power and truth and love these words contain and the motivation of our Lord's heart in saying them. This is not like in school where the expectations and goals are lowered to acquiesce to the student's inability to learn or to just pass a test so that the national averages look better or something, okay? The the master raises the expectations, almost to the point where it's humanly unattainable. And this is where we should remember his words to his disciples, his students. In Matthew 19:26, with men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now Jehovah God is perfect, and he's righteous, and he's just, and he's holy, and he's loving in all of his ways, brothers and sisters. He is light and there is no darkness in him. Heaven, his kingdom, where he dwells and rules from, is spotless, unblemished, clean, and unstained. And if we hope and expect to dwell there also, we can't be spotted, blemished, filthy, or stained either. Do you remember Paul's words to the Corinthians? <clears throat> it's in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 18, somewhere around in there. The passage says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. You know this. For what partnership 
has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is another name for the devil? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you should be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Do you see Almighty God's concern for holiness in this? He says in the word, there is no one else or nothing else like him. We are to be like him, therefore we have to stand out and stand alone so that we are not yoked to unbelievers or darkness or lawlessness or belial even for a short time or anything that causes us to lower that bar or have that bar set by Jesus, not by us. Yes, Jesus talked to and ate with sinners, I hear some of you thinking that, but he didn't hang out with them and he didn't spend long hours or days with them. God says that his heavenly plan and goal is for him to be our God and for us to be his people. But that won't happen if we develop a case of or continue in our laxity as individuals and as his church. Jesus tells us the one who endures to the end will be saved. That's Matthew 24, 13. And he says, be Faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. It's Revelation 2.10. So what does that term laxity mean? The Lord put this previously unknown word in my spirit and my mind, and he's done that a few times with words that are perfectly fit for his teaching, me and you, I hope, and I've never even uttered them before, as I said earlier, but it means a lack of strictness of care. It also means the looseness of a limb or a muscle. Another description says behavior that shows little care, attention, or control. Yet another equates it with a tendency of being too easygoing and not strict enough. These words, phrases, and definitions are foreign to what the Bible teaches us. Matthew 7:15 through 23 tells us, summarily, that we should exercise care. Paul exhorts us in Hebrews 12, 11, and 12 to lift our drooping hands and strengthen our weak knees. 2 Timothy 1, 7 reminds us, For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control, or sound mind or self-discipline. And 1 Peter 5.8 warns us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. These are all admonitions and rebukes against a sense of Christian or spiritual laxity. Jesus does not ever speak in order to be legalistic or bound by laws in that regard. He does just the opposite. 
His life and his words, his example, and even death on the cross are to give us life and freedom. And so his word teaches us about what will either keep us from the freedom he wants us to have in him or what will take it away from us. If we don't pay attention to our holiness, we live counter to the word and we risk bringing reproach to his name, not to mention our own, but his name, rather than glory to his name. Amen? And we know the bar, if we know his word, we know the standard, we know what the plumb line is. We know that he's raised the standard. So who are we to lower it, right? We don't have that authority, frankly. And that's not an option for us either. He doesn't even, he doesn't even lower it. This doesn't have to do with salvation. This has to do with living out our faith, our witness, our transformation in him, becoming a new creature in him, looking like him, being his representatives and ambassadors, like the word says, not cheapening or taking lightly the grace we've been shown and given. As his people, we are to obey and reflect his character according to his words, his repeated words. Leviticus 20.26 You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. 1 Peter 1.14-15 But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Deuteronomy 7, 3 and 4 says, You shall not intermarry with them, meaning the peoples of the lands that are unsaved and, and don't follow God, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn your sons from following me to serve other gods, which are idols. They will change your priorities. They will make you lax. Ezra 9, 1 through 3. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. As we mentioned before, Ephesians 5.27 So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. James 1.27 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You hear that? The message that God's been putting on my heart for almost nine years now, keep oneself unstained from the world. 
The more you become lax in your actions, in your thinking, in your speech, in your dress, you are not unsaved, but you're becoming more like the world. And God called you out from the world. You're not supposed to look like them. You're not supposed to act like them. You're not supposed to think like them. You're not supposed to talk like them. You're not supposed to dress like them. You're not supposed to do anything like the world. You should be totally different. You've been a new creature. You've been separated. You've been pulled out from the world. Don't let anything cause you to be lax so that you dip back into it. A little or a lot. Because when you start a little bit, then it's a slippery slope. And it goes down, 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 down until you look just like the world and you don't even realize it anymore because it's it's fairly slow. And because you live in this microcosm of your own world, it takes someone from outside of your world, or at least somewhat, to look down and see those changes in you and say, hey man, what happened? But instead, now we get offended and everything and say, whoa, 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 dude, you know, you, you shouldn't be telling me that. You know, you're, who are you? You know, you're trying to be holier than thou and self-righteous? No, I'm your brother, and I love you. And we've got a standard to live up to, and it's not even one that we chose for ourselves. Almighty God died on the cross, left heaven, shed his blood so that we could be wiped clean, so we could meet the bar, gave us the grace to meet the bar that he set and maintains and even raised. And we're not to get lacked. We're not supposed to lower the bar. Philippians 2.15 That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine, or are supposed to shine, as lights in the world. Now, it's human nature to only do what is expected of us, I know, and often we don't even measure up to that. We're human, we're imperfect, we fail, we have our own interests and desires, lusts at heart, a human, imperfect, low standard is set before us as humans, and we often are negligent to even reach that. But the Lord Jesus doesn't accept our fallen nature and inability to aim for or rest upon that low standard. He says, you have heard that it was said, and then raises the standard by saying, but I say to you, and then points out what that standard is. If we continue in Matthew 5, he continues to educate and command us in the way of holiness, in practical ways, ways that reflect our attitudes of love and death to self and obedience. Verse 40, And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Raising the bar. Maintaining holiness. Not tit for tat. Not tooth for tooth. An eye for an eye. Verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, forces you to go one mile, instead of saying, man, what are you talking about? I'm not going with you one mile. He says, no, don't just go with him one mile and don't argue with him. Go with him two miles. Verses 46 to 48. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors, the sinners, the unbelievers do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, the ones that greet you and agree with the way you believe and live the way you live, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the worldly, do the same thing? You, therefore... 
must instead, I added that word, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. What practical examples does Jesus speak to my heart and your heart in his continuing call for us to be perfect and holy even as he is perfect and holy? Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says to be holy in all our conduct, all aspects of our lives at all times. That's a tall order, a human impossibility, in fact. I know this. But as Jesus mentioned, what is impossible with man is possible with God. He says the grace is available. 2 Corinthians 12.9 says through Paul, and you're familiar with this, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. He doesn't lower his expectations or change his command. Rather, he insists on the command and urges us in expectation, but acknowledges our insufficiency to fulfill it all the time and extends his grace and offers his help, a helping hand, in order that the bar may be met and maintained. As the Lord was teaching me this and helping me to articulate it to you, he also used my wife one day through her devotional without her knowledge of what I was given to hear by God. And it said in Second Chronicles chapter 29, and it was involving King Hezekiah, in verses 1 through 11, and I praise God for this because usually God just speaks to me. Usually it's my prayer time. Usually I'm up way before her in the morning because my job is different. And that's the time that I'm in my desolate place and I'm in my prayer closet. Even though it's a living room, but it's a small corner of a small house with a little light on and everything. And it's my time with him. And he says, close the door. It's hard to find a desolate place and I don't have to, a door to close there so I want to keep it to myself and occasionally if she can't sleep she'll get up or something like that and, and but this particular day God used her to help me to strengthen what he was teaching me okay in verses 1 through 11 2nd Chronicles chapter 29 we see several things I saw he showed me several things that we should take note of and do in our lives listen to this passage Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did, unlike many, many, many kings, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. Now, his father was Zechariah. David was a spiritual father, one that had gone before him in time in chronological order. In the first year, listen to this, in the first year of his reign, and in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. Meaning they were closed and they were in disrepair. In the first year, in the first month, he fixed and opened the house of the, the, door, the doors of the house of the Lord. 
Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said to them, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. 25-year-old, for our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps, put out the lamps that are supposed to be burning, and have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment, and of hissing. And you see all this with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword in battle, and our sons and our daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now, he says, it is in my heart as a 25-year-old in the first year of his reign, in the first month of his reign. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. Maybe this age of grace doesn't have fierce anger. Maybe it has disappointment, but I don't even want to disappoint him. I love my God. I want to obey him and show him my love by obeying his commandments. I don't want him, to be, want him to be mad, and I don't want him to be disappointed. In fact, as a kid, I think it was worse to be disappointed, or to see it in them, my parents, than it was for them to be mad. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and make offerings to him. Now take a look at that scripture and apply it to your own lives. Whatever this spirit of laxity is in all of us, to whatever degree, to how many different areas of our lives, no matter what it is, if you love God and you want to show him that love by keeping his commandments and you're serious about being called a child of God legitimately, knowing and hoping and expecting to get into heaven by his merit, not your own, you want to show him your love, you want to be like King Hezekiah. You want to start out right now making a covenant with God to change things. Ask them what they are. Ask them for his grace. Ask them to help you. Ask others to help you. Don't get snitty when somebody wants to point out a flaw in you as a loving brother or sister. Be teachable and humble and admit or see for the first time that what they're saying may be right. And then don't be negligent. Change your behavior. Repair the doors of the vestibule. Turn on the lamps and burn them. Burn the incense instead of them not burning. Offer sacrifices again. All those things were comparable. Now Hezekiah, we said, he was young. One, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. How many times in Scripture do we read about kings doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord? 
He did what was, what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That ought to perk up our attention right there. He got to work right away in the first year, in the first month, his administration, so to speak, got to work to put in order the house of the Lord. He, like Jesus, remember, was about the Father, ordered, most importantly for them and for us especially, to consecrate themselves, to dedicate, to sanctify, to set apart for God's use, to cleanse or purify, to hallow, to make sacred to the Lord. We're supposed to do that with ourselves, starting today. He also told them, carry out the filth from the holy place. Remember God said in his word that our own righteousness, things that we thought we were doing that were right, were like filthy rags. So he says, get rid of that filth. Ask God to tell you what you're doing wrong, what you're doing right, what you what you're lax about, what you need to go back to meeting and, and raising the bar about. Not do what you have heard that it was said, do the but I say to you. Carry out the filth from the holy place. And you are God's holy place if you really belong to him. We as Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit of God. And as such, we are to eliminate purposefully and willingly the filthy things from our lives. In this case, our laxity, our casualness, our comfortable attitudes towards our high calling to be lights in the world and to the world and to be to, to walk and be to be and walk straightly and uprightly in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And remember, just as Hezekiah put the house of the Lord in order, we have to put our Christian lives in order. Just as the Israelites had neglected the upkeep and use of the house of the Lord. The doors were closed and needed repair, remember? Uh, they need to, need to get rid of whatever is not holy. They shut the doors of the vestibule. They had put out the lamps. They had not burned the incense. They didn't offer burnt offerings. They had turned their backs towards the habitation of the Lord. Our casualness, brothers and sisters, our casualness in our Christian lives has caused us to be negligent. And he tells us specifically not to be negligent in our hearts, in walking closely with our Savior, submitting to Him rather than to our flesh, obeying Him well and always, living in integrity, resisting the pull of the world that we are living in but not of. The goodness of our God, coupled with the influence of the ungodly all around us every day, causes us to take things of God for granted. We become passive rather than active. We are more like the pinballs than the flippers, <laughs> and before long our lives don't appear as strikingly different from the world as they should. The enemy is constantly trying to take us down below. When we have been born from above, we've got to resolve ourselves, like Hezekiah, to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, to allow him to show us the filthy areas of our lives, the closed doors of the vestibules, the unburned incense, the forgotten burnt offerings, that our hearts, that are our heart attitudes, our mindsets towards Almighty God in his ways and his statutes. The laxity that has not only wormed its way into us, but has begun to overtake us. 
we have to, like Hezekiah, consecrate ourselves. Remember when our Lord Jesus said these words in Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but instead they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. This is what he's talking about. We need to let the Spirit, even other believers, hold us lovingly but truthfully accountable for our wrong actions and our inactions. We need to be humble and remain humble and teachable. It's not that we don't have the scriptural knowledge, usually. It's that we are not living it out. James tells us, remember, to be doers, not just hearers, deceiving ourselves. Holy Spirit of God, you lead us and guide us into all truth. John 16:13 tells us this. We need you to speak to us as individual believers and as your collective church and tell us lovingly but pointedly what we need to hear, what changes we need to make in living out lives of vibrant faith, dedicated to Jesus Christ, our Savior, in obedience and submission, truth and boldness. Make us, where and when necessary, uncomfortable in our hearts, to no longer be casual or comfortable or lax in our Christian lives. Let us never be confused by others to be mistaken for worldly people. Let us gladly and joyfully be conformed to and characterized by holiness. Let us not be seen by our king to be like the Laodicean church or headed that way. We may not see ourselves that way, but you, O Lord, do. You say to us now, like you did the Laodicean church, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold. So because you're lukewarm, lax, casual, comfortable, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, we say as a church, or as individuals, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that we are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be actually rich and have white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love, I reprove 
and discipline. So be zealous, not lax, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, are you listening for it? And opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the individuals in the churches. Father, this you have said to your people, not to the unsaved world. We are in need of your help and grace to endure and to finish the race we have started. Lead us to proper repentance for areas of spiritual laxity. You laid down your very life for us. Let us not live half-heartedly for you in return. Let us not be content in the knowledge that we have gotten our foot in the door of your kingdom. But let us run and anticipate your invitation to the banquet that awaits us and that you have prepared for us. No more spiritual laxity at all. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. Your name is above all names. And we as Christians, called by your name, let us live like it to your glory. Amen.